there are in the Jewish tradition, when you look at the biblical record, there are three major pilgrimage holidays. Pilgrimage holidays. A pilgrim, of course, is somebody who goes on a religious journey. The earliest pilgrims who left Europe, the Huguenots amongst others, um, who left Europe and persecution for what eventually became the United States were called pilgrims because they left on a religious mission for religious freedom. So too in the, uh, in the Torah, in the Bible, we know that there are three great pilgrimage festivals and they are as follows. There is Pesach, there is Sukkot, and there is Shavuot. Shavuot, of course, is in the middle. I, I suspect that Shavuot, if you'll permit me, is like the Yiddish expression, a shtifkind. It's like the forgotten child of the Jewish holiday cycle. <laughs> Some of it has to do with the fact that unlike Passover and unlike Sukkot, it's not seven or eight days long. It's one day, only one day in Israel, two days outside of Israel. So it seems kind of small. Unlike Sukkot, where you build a beautiful sukkah in your backyard, or Pesach, where you have beautiful meals in a state with your family, what exactly, apart from Justin's bar mitzvah, do we do on Shavuot? And so the answer is, since Shavuot celebrates the giving of the Torah to the Jewish people, the answer is we study Torah, which isn't probably as exciting to many people as sitting down and eating a really great Passover meal or eating outside in the sukkah. But that having been said, I want to share with you that Sukkot, excuse me, Shavuot, is my most favorite Jewish holiday. And I'm going to tell you why. First of all, it's nice because the weather's always, you're always good. Passover, it's very shoddy. And on Sukkot, hold your breath because it's probably windy and rainy. So the weather is always really, really nice. But more than that, Shavuot represents, at least in the mind and imagination of a rabbi, the most Jewish of moments because it captures the very essence of the thing that created Jews and maintains Jews. And so I want to share with you why, in fact, Shavuot is my most favorite Jewish holiday. It goes as follows. The ancient rabbis record that when the Torah was given to the Jews in the desert, that it was given with three different things. In other words, that there were three ingredients in the moment that made the giving of the Torah to the Jewish people possible. And the ancient rabbis go to record these three things as follows. Number one, the Torah was given, the Hebrew word is esh, which means fire. And the ancient rabbis say, why was the Torah given with fire? Because just as fire can be lit and light other lights without diminishing its own flame, so too the Torah can give something to you and you can give it over to other people and it doesn't diminish anything inside yourself. The other thing, of course, is, is that the Torah symbolizing or being given as Aish, as fire, is that it also explains something else to us. That the world is a dark place and everybody needs a flashlight to make their way through so we don't trip and fall, that we don't lose our way and so the Torah is the most beautiful of guiding lights for us. And so the ancient rabbis thinking of the word Aisha, fire, imagine the Torah would be as it has been for centuries and centuries and centuries, a guiding light for the Jewish people through the most difficult and the happiest of times. Number two, 
So we began with fire. The rabbis then say that the Torah, the second thing the Torah was given with was with mayim, which is water. Why water? The ancient rabbis say, because the water comes from up high, rain, and goes to the lowest surfaces in the world, so too the Torah can reach and touch wherever a person is in life. It can inspire the youngest of children and the wisest and most sage of people. No matter where you may be in your life, the Torah can reach and touch you if you open yourself up to it. The other idea behind this is a beautiful story about one of Judaism's greatest Talmudic sages. I have no doubt that you know his name. His name was Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, once again, one of the greatest and most auspicious of Talmudic sages, lived about 2,000 years ago. And the story goes of his life as follows. He was from a poor, uneducated family. He was a shepherd. He fell in love with a girl who came from a very prosperous, educated, rabbinic family. And her father would not allow Akiva to marry the girl because he wasn't educated and he had no money. So what did he go out and do? Despondent and full of despair, he was out one day walking with his herd and he came to a river and he sat down by the river. And as the water was passing in front of him, and he saw all the rocks and boulders inside the river. And he saw how they had been carved smooth by the movement of the water over days and weeks and years and decades. And he said to himself that if water can shape the hardest substance in the world, which is rocks, certainly, he said, it could shape me. Rabbi Akiva, we are told, from that moment on, went to a kindergarten class, sat in the back to learn the Aleph Bet, and he quickly accelerated all the way to becoming, within a very short time, one of the most outstanding and respected Talmudic scholars in all of Jewish history. The idea, of course, is that when the ancient rabbis say that the Torah was given with water, it is the idea that it, it is always there for the taking, if we are ready and if we are open the drops of Torah can fold themselves into us. So we have ash, we have fire. We have mayim, we have water. What is the third and final element that was absolutely essential on the menu, on the recipe book, to give the Torah to the Jewish people? And the ancient rabbis say it was Bamidbar, which in Hebrew means the desert. For those of you who have been fortunate, and I pray you all have, and if you haven't, you must promise as soon as we're able to, that you'll do it, that you have been to Israel. And if you have been to Israel, I pray that you have gone down south to the Negev, to the Judean desert, where you've seen the immense wilderness. It's not a desert like the Sahara is. It's a different kind of place. It is there where the Israelites wandered to receive the Torah given to the Jewish people. The ancient rabbis say that it was given Bamidbar in the wilderness because the word Bamidbar in Hebrew also spells the word Midaber, which means to speak. One rabbinic commentator says, why was the Midbar, the wilderness, chosen as the place for God to Midaber speak with us? Because the desert is empty. There's no sound there. And in the desert, what you hear most out of everything is you hear yourself. 
in the wilderness, you can hear the questions most relevant to your life. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do with my time? How do I find meaning in my life? The Torah was given in the desert because we should hear no other voices than the questions that come from ourselves. The questions that our soul speaks to us every moment. Finding something redeeming and meaningful and good in our life. So much so that there's an ancient Hasidic story which I suspect every rabbi must learn at some point in their training. Where a student comes to a rabbi and says, they're in a class and the rabbi asks, opens up the floor and he says, to all the students who are here, you can ask me any question you want. So one student asks this technical question, another student asks this other deep Talmudic question, it's all technical stuff, and finally, and the rabbi answers them all, of course. And then, finally, one student stands up and says, Rabbi, I have a question for you. Go ahead and ask, he says. What's the meaning of life? And the rabbi pauses and says, that's such a beautiful question. Why would you want an answer to it? Which could be understood maybe perhaps as a little bit of humor, but I don't believe it is. The most important things that we find in our lives are not the answers, despite the sensibilities of the modern era that we live in, that we're consumed with answers. Really the most important things that we have in life are the questions. In the desert, you hear questions. So the Torah was given with fire, with water, and with wilderness to provide light, to provide opening, and lastly, to hear the questions to enable those things to happen. That's the reason why Shavuot is my most favorite Jewish holiday. And yes, of course, cheesecake and ice cream. I'm not lying, it's true too. Before I conclude, there's one last thing I wanna share with you. It's all Quran, it's very uh, topical to the current moment that we're living in. About uh, a day and a half ago, I tweeted out, um, of course, on my Twitter feed, um, asking a question. The question was, is that Austria and Germany has flown the Israeli flag over their national parliaments in support of the state of Israel. Germany even went so far in their, in their governmental statement on the conflict that that's taking place in Gaza. They went so far as to say, while calling upon each party in this conflict, the Israelis and Hamas, the Palestinians, to be respectful of civilian lives. They went so far as to add, however, we understand that Hamas is holding the population of Gaza as hostages in this conflict. They were essentially saying, the German government was saying, that there is no moral equivalency between them and that. That how Israel operates and how Hamas operates, it is not equivalent. That's what they were saying. The American government came out with their unequivocal support, unequivocal support for the right of Israel to defend its borders. And there was no but put into that. It was a straight sentence. A day and a half ago, the Prime Minister of Britain, Boris Johnson, tweeted out a message following the disgusting, racist, anti-Semitic riots that took place in London and throughout Britain. And he said, these are his words, and after Shavuot, you can go to your Twitter feed and check it out. He said, on Erev Shavuot, as the Jews throughout the world are about to celebrate the beginning of their identity, I join all those reasonable voices 
who detest and decry the racism that has filled the streets of this country. And then there's Canada. I tweeted out yesterday that it had been 24 hours since the protests, attacks on Jews in this city and country, and not a word from our government, not a word. This morning, the Globe and Mail, I read that finally a statement was put out by the Canadian government where basically they said everything. They support Israel's right to defend itself, but, but, they should be very careful of international law, as if Israel isn't. Israel has a right to territorial, territorial integrity, but the stuff in Sheikh Jarrah is a violation of international law, which it is not, which it is not. It might have other political dimensions to it, but it is not a violation of international law. I would urge you, when you have a moment, to go online and check out the statement that was issued by the Canadian government I suspect that you'll come to the same conclusion that I did. They tried to say everything. And when you try to say everything, what do you end up saying? Nothing. Nothing. You know, in basketball, they have something called a layup, which is an easy thing to score, right? In hockey, the equivalent of a layup is an empty net. In politics, when people go in the streets and start screaming about raping Jewish women and beating up Jews in the street, that's a political layup. You issue a statement saying that irrespective of political differences, of a conflict that is more than 5,000 miles from the shore of this country, that law and order and tolerance must be enforced at all times. And throughout the world, wherever people live. But that didn't happen. And not only that, but the statement didn't come from the prime minister of this country. It came from the foreign minister of this country. I join those voices who decry, of course, anti-Semitism as it emerges throughout this country. The government's message also made mention of Islamophobia. But if you looked at all the Jewish uh, all the Jewish protests that gathered, there was not one example of Islamophobia, not one. But there were rampant examples of anti-Semitism. So allow me to say this. The conflict that takes place in Israel is not a reason why people hate Israel or hate Jews. It is an invitation for them to crawl out from their rocks to spew their noxious hatred against Jews. Understand that Israel is not the cause and that our condition of living is so very different from the condition that my great-grandparents or even great-grandparents lived under in their early lives because they don't have to live, we don't have to live in the kind of fear that they lived in that the projection of Jewish power while unsettling to many people is unquestionably a source of enormous comfort to Jews throughout the world. And make no mistake, Israel, while having immense force, doesn't go to war first with its army. Israel first goes to war with its lawyers. 
an old friend of mine is in the Israeli chief of staff. They have an entire room filled with lawyers that approve all of the targeting decisions. That room is sealed off from the generals and operational commanders. They are not allowed in that room. The targeting instructions go to the lawyers. They view it and peer review it in light of international law and they either approve it or disapprove it and then it is sent off. To my knowledge, Israel is the only country in the world that does that. And you should be proud of it. Chag Sameach, everyone.